I've mentioned before that whenever my brother would help me with the remodeling project, or probably more accurately, when I would help him, um, he would say, it has to get ugly before it gets pretty. And his point was that before we get to the finished remodel, we're going to have to make a mess. And we've had some huge messes at our house. But I found that that principle of ugly first and dirty later, or, or of um, pretty later, works in almost every area of life. I mean, men, have you ever had to work on a car? Um, I haven't, but I know some guys who have. And um, if you're going to fix the engine, you have to make it look ugly for a little while. You have to take a bunch of parts out and it doesn't look very good. Or maybe if you have to fix the body of the car, it has to look ugly first before it can look pretty. Certainly you've seen a car that's been stripped down just to the metal before it's ready to paint. Ladies, have you ever had a facial? I mean, why would you put that nasty goop on your face? Right? But, but to some degree, you recognize that you have to look ugly. You don't wear that out in public, right? But you, don't, you have to look ugly before you can get pretty, before you can have the skin that you want. Or what about gardening? You have to rake out, out the leaves and till the ground before you can expect to have a garden full of vegetables. And frankly, that principle works with the Christian life as well, that there is a sense in which we want the pretty, but we're not willing to go through the ugly. We have to recognize that there is a huge battle going on that has to be fought and won before we can reach our glorified state. And the nature of the church is that there is a real purifying process much like that of purifying gold. That it has to get ugly first. It has to get heated up before it can get pretty, before it can get purified. Timothy was sent by Paul to the church at Ephesus to bring order out of chaos. The false teachers were taking over and leaving the church confused and decimated. And Timothy's job was to clean up the mess. The problem was not com- completely smooth and, and, and without its problems, or the, the process, I should say, was not completely smooth or without its problems. Timothy's job was to rebuke and dismiss the elders that were living in open sin and heterodoxy and then to put things back together by teaching the church about what is true and teaching them how to appoint elders. And last week we saw in verses 19 through 21 that Paul gave instructions regarding sinning elders and how to handle them. In fact, because of their sins, some of them would have to be dismissed. And so, if we just logically consider what Paul's working through in his mind, removing elders, then the next step is, well, what do we do to replace them? And so that's what Paul's going to address here. Because after some elders are dismissed, some pastors are dismissed, the temptation temptation is to quickly replace them with others who have not properly gone through the vetting process. They haven't been properly evaluated. We haven't taken time to consider their qualifications and their fitness for service. And so Paul is going to warn here against that. So let me read our text that begins in chapter 5, verse 22. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. 
No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sin of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Here, what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see, based on what Paul is teaching to Timothy, is that the purity of the church is codependent on the congregation and its pastor. The purity of the church is codependent on the congregation and its pastor. Now, take that whole phrase and keep that within the, the larger theology of the fact that all the purity of the church is dependent upon God and His power working through us, through the Spirit. But as far as our responsibility is concerned, the church's purity is, is something that we need to give attention to, both as a congregation and as, as a pastor. I think that's what Paul's talking about. So in verses 22, 24, and 25, Paul's talking about the church's responsibility to be careful about the purity of the church, specifically in how you choose elders. And then he's in verse 23, he's talking about the purity of the church with regard to Timothy himself, the current leader of the church, and, and how he needs to be careful not to take uh, piety too far, like move it towards a, a place of false piety. And we'll get to that when we look at verse 23. So first... The church must choose its pastors carefully. Verse 22. The church must choose its pastors carefully. Again, when we saw last time that the temptation is for the church to act partially towards its pastors. That is, that they either they don't want to address the sin because they just don't. It's just going to be too much. Uh, confrontation or, or whatever the case, or they address it unfairly. You know, they, they just bring an accusation with only one person, with no verification effectively. And, and Paul says in the previous section, in verse 21, that I solemnly charge you on the basis of these witnesses, God, Jesus, and the angels, they're all watching. So don't, don't treat this situation with any kind of partiality. The temptation is to be partial in our judgment of, of sinning elders. But Paul says, don't do that because God, Jesus, and the angels are watching. And So go ahead and if they have sinned, rebuke them and rebuke them in public. And now in verse 22, the command is to take the choice of your next pastor seriously or assistant pastor, whatever the case. Whenever you have the opportunity to bring on a pastor, make sure you take it seriously. And I call this the choosing of a pastor because of the phrase there in verse 22, lay hands on. Lay hands on. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily. This phrase, lay hands on, is used several times throughout the New Testament and it can refer to a number of things. It can refer to healing, like in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, that the, the apostles lay hand, laid hands on, on some people in order to heal them. In chapter 8 of Acts, it talks about um, uh the apostles laying hands on some people in order that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. So this gift of the Spirit. But most often it's used to refer to commissioning a person to ministry. Laying hands on a person is commissioning, commissioning a person to ministry. And it seems to me that that's the way it's used here. So in Acts 6, it says, verse 6, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. Talking about 
the, the seven deacons. In Acts 13.3, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. It's talking about the Antioch church laying their hands on as a symbolic way to commission them, Paul and, and, and Bar, or Saul and Barnabas for the ministry of, of taking the gospel to the, um, to the nations. And then turn back to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 14. Notice that Timothy's appointment as pastor was confirmed by this symbolic act as well. He says, Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So he's saying, Timothy, you have been commissioned for the ministry by virtue of the church's um, the, the church's work. That is, that they have been the ones that are the, the agents of your commission. Certainly God is behind it all and the Spirit's leading, but, but the, 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 the immediate agent, we could say, is the church. As they lay hands on Timothy, they're saying, you are equipped, you're fit for ministry. And so that's what I think Paul is saying here in verse 22 of chapter 5. He's saying, take it slowly. Don't lay hands. Don't commission someone to ministry too hastily. I mean, the temptation is to just, you know, we, we need a spot that's filled, and so let's just fill it. And so we'll take anyone with a pulse. But don't do that. Instead, take it slowly. That's the idea. Don't, don't do it hastily. But why? Isn't it better to have, let's say, just a decent pastor than to have no pastor at all? And the answer is no, it's not. If by decent pastor you mean some that are kind of fudging on some of the qualifications... And no, it's not. We must choose. We must choose our pastors carefully because look at the reason here at the end of verse 22. And or because you will share in the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So here's the point. Here's the reason why we must be careful. Be slow to choose a pastor. And that is because the church who appoints an unqualified pastor is complicit with his future sin. The church who appoints an unqualified pastor is complicit with his future sin. So if we appoint, for example, a new convert, which goes against the qualification in 1 Timothy 3, right? He cannot be a new convert. So let's say we do. He just got saved two months ago and he looks like he's got all the tools He's studious. He's kind of a businessman. He, he thinks like in a management kind of style. He's very uh, outgoing. He's very personable. He's got a great personality. And, and we think, you know what? He's a Christian. He seems to be called to ministry. He seems to be gifted. And his preaching is actually decent. And so let's call him. If we appoint a new convert, then we shouldn't be surprised when he goes off into sin. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but clearly it violates the qualification in 1 Timothy 3. Or it could be any of the other, any other of the qualifications there in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. Whatever the case, if we hastily bring on a pastor, whether that be assistant, whatever, when he sins, we are complicit with him. Josie was in a play this spring and I helped on the set design. The set designer, Randy Manger, told me about a house that he bought in Sterling Heights five or ten years ago, and it was his family's dream home. It was move-in ready. They settled in. They enjoyed the house. 
several months and one weekend they went away on a trip took the family and the two dogs up north while he was up there he received a call from his neighbor his neighbor said that your smoke detectors are beeping as if the power had been shut off in the house and the neighbor said we haven't had any power outages in the area so we're not really sure what's going on there so he headed back home and he arrived home to find four feet of water in his basement. The leak had started in the second floor bathroom and both floors were completely destroyed, unsalvageable. The entire interior had to be gutted and rebuilt. His family had to live in a hotel for four or five months. The insurance had a, what I'll call a forensic waterologist come out, I don't remember the exact name, but look into the cause of the disaster and he discovered that the cause of the leak was from a wrongly installed pipe in the upstairs bathroom. That the previous owners had failed to make the proper connection. And for Randy, it had to get ugly before it got pretty. He came to home to ugly and it had to get uglier before it could get pretty again. But let's step back and take a walk in the shoes of the previous owner who allegedly had wrongly installed the pipe, if that indeed was the problem. You know, he's working on this project and it's been going on for a long time and he wants to get to a spot where it's pretty. But instead of doing it the right way, he cuts some corners and maybe doesn't get an inspection, maybe um, uses the wrong kinds of pipes or doesn't seal the pipes properly. He puts the drywall back up paints it, installs the faucet. The house looks great. Walk in and just, this is exactly what I want. The only problem is that there's a huge disaster lying below the surface waiting to happen. It's going to come to a head at some point that there are pipes that are improperly installed and eventually that problem is going to be exposed. And who bears the responsibility? It's the person who hastily put the house back together. I mean, what a disaster. Untold thousands of dollars and hours that were poured back into that house in order to get back to where it needed to be. What a disaster comes from installing pipes too hastily. But how much more so when we install a pastor too hastily? That we don't do our due diligence You know, we want to get to our church to a place where it's pretty. You know, we want a face for the leadership of this church. And so we fudge on a couple of the requirements that are there for the office of the pastor. And we lay hands on him symbolically showing that he has been appointed to be our pastor and everything looks great. But but below the surface is hiding a huge flaw in the character of this pastor that we didn't take time to try to find out. And I can assure you that like the improperly installed pipe, that it's only a matter of time before that problem is exposed in the heart of the pastor, that it's actually expressed in the way that he treats people, the way that he serves and and leads the church. And who is it that bears the responsibility for that kind of gross ecclesiastical negligence? Partially him, right? He's going to stand before God for his sins 
But I would suggest to you based on this text that the congregation who commissioned him to service put him into service too hastily. And so Paul says, don't do it. Don't rush into this. Instead, take your time. So in short, don't participate in the recognition of an unqualified leader. You do him no favors. You do yourself no favors. You violate the qualification or demands that God requires in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And you guarantee a future disaster. So number one, the church must choose its pastor carefully. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a second, what, what happens if you know, there's just something that we didn't see? We tried our best and you know, at some point you just gotta, you got to choose. Well, we'll get to that when we get to verses 24 and 25. Because there is a process by which we can do this. Secondly, in verse 23, we see that the pastor must not take piety to an extreme. The pastor must not take piety to an extreme. So the church bears responsibility for the purity of the church, specifically in how they choose their pastor, and therefore must use discretion and patience. But the pastor also bears responsibility for the purity of the church, and therefore he must not, according to verse 23, take piety to an extreme. Now, let me just explain to you that piety is not inherently evil. Piety is, according to the dictionary, a devout fulfillment of religious obligations. And as Christians, we ought to be pious in that sense. But I hope you understand that there's also an extreme form of piousness or piety that misunderstands what true purity is all about. It's, it's the pharisaical type of piety. That we're going to be fulfilling our religious obligations, that sort of extreme form of piety in order to be seen or just to be to look good on the outside. And Timothy is hearing Paul talk about purity in the church and, and Timothy has to make sure that he doesn't go too far and so maybe he's bought into the lie of the false teachers who are calling for a total abstention from drinking wine. Now, we don't know this for sure that that's what they're calling for, but it seems like based on what Paul is telling him in verse 23... It's okay, Timothy, to drink a little wine. It seems like that's what they were advocating. And this is not surprising because in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we find out that these false teachers were forbidding the Christians from marrying and from eating certain kinds of foods. And Paul says, these things are given to you by God for your good. There's no, there's no holiness necessarily in being single. There's no holiness in denying yourself of certain physical pleasures like food. Don't, don't let them fool you in that. And so perhaps they are also saying true holiness, true purity is in completely abstaining from wine. This is a form of Christian purity. And so in order to appeal to them, it seems like Timothy was actually bringing about unnecessary physical harm to his body by not taking wine for the sake of his physical well-being. And here we see the fatherly side of Paul. He says, Timothy, I know your frail condition and how you're prone to sickness, but I want you to take your medicine. There's nothing inherently evil with drinking wine. Notice verse 3. He says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now let me explain that statement because you know, the hairs on your arms might be, be standing up right now. And the water in... Uh, excuse me, the wine in the first century was polluted and 
uh, the water was the right way to say it. The water in the first century was polluted and infested with diseases, so it was not easy to just get drinking water, right? It was not readily available and not the cleanest beverage that, that they had. Instead, the, probably the cleanest and most readily available, the easiest to obtain, was wine. And their wine was not the same as what you see at the grocery store. It was cut with water from one-third to one-tenth of what we have in our, what, what people have in their wine. Let's say it that way. So, so drinking wine, definitely, even though it was cut by that much, could actually lead to drunkenness, but you'd have to drink a lot more than a person would today. And Timothy was saying, listen, I'm going to abstain from it altogether. And I'm going to drink this parasite-infested water and just try to live on that. And Paul's saying, don't do it. For the sake of your health, it's completely appropriate for you to drink some of this wine. Now, let me be clear that, that I don't think there's any need for us to obey this command. Okay? This is not meant for us. We don't need to drink wine for our illness or for our health. There are plenty of other clean beverages and effective medicines that we can take to prevent sickness and, and bring about good health. This reminds me of the Old West during the time of the gold rush in California. If you wanted clean water, you didn't just turn on your, your faucet or go to the grocery store. Water was dirty and full of diseases. And so drinking water was actually a way um, that you would invite parasites and illnesses to yourself. So instead, what they would drink is, anyone know? This, this sludge that they called coffee. And it was a way to be sure that they would kill all the bacteria and avoid illness. And, and it seems like this was in, in a third world, pre-industrialized era, this was the way for them to, to remain healthy, was to, to drink some of this wine. Now, obviously, that's why you have all these commands, don't get drunk with wine, but you never have commands, don't drink wine. Um, we need to uh, think discerningly about this issue. But, but, but Timothy is trying to actually exclude himself completely from it, and in the process... He's, he's bringing upon himself illnesses that are unnecessary. And so what Paul is saying is you need to be discerning about your own piety, Timothy, because sometimes in our attempt to appeal to the weak, we actually abstain from things, things that are designed by God for our good. For Timothy, it was wine. For us, it would be something else, I think. So the church must choose its pastor carefully. It must not lay hands too hastily. The pastor must not pick, take piety too extreme. And then back to the church in verses 24 to 25. The church must choose its pastor discerningly. Not much of a difference here in the main point. Um, the church must choose its pastor discerningly. Both the congregation and the pastor have responsibility to protect the purity of the church. The church has to make sure that they're slow to appoint someone and these two verses go along with verse 22, that the church must use discernment in appointing its pastor. And so Paul here in verses 24 and 25 distinguishes between two kinds of sin. In verse 24 he says there is an, uh, an open sin and there's a hidden sin. See if you can see that in verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others their sins follow after. So there's kind of an open sin, that's the first part of verse 24, that's just obvious, it's, op it's, it's external. We don't have to go through a, a process to expose it. 
We just know the person for a short period of time and we just see, wow, they are, uh, they, they are really weak in this area or whatever the case. The hidden sin, the second part of verse 24, is only able to be revealed through a process, through what I would call an evaluation process. And it seems to me that Paul's point here is that the church must put the pastor through this evaluation process. In other words, there are some sins that are going to be obvious when it comes to this person's character. They are open and clear. But there are others that, according to the words of verse 24, their sins follow after. They'll come later. And the good news is that this, this sin will be exposed sooner or later. So if, let's say, for example, we are choosing a pastor and we fail to evaluate properly or we are just completely deceived. The person is just a really good um, person on pu- putting on a front. Even though the, we did the best that we could, we did not do it hastily, we took our time, we tried to get references and all that, what we can be sure about is that those sins will eventually be exposed, won't they? That if we don't see them exposed in our evaluation process, then when will those sins be exposed? At the judgment seat, at the very latest, Right? If he's a Christian, it'll be at the judgment seat. If he's not a Christian, it'll be at the great white throne. And so his deeds will be exposed either here on this earth or in eternity. And so in that sense, we, we need to recognize kind of in the bigger picture that God is in control and we can't ultimately see into the heart, but we do the best we can to try to, to have these sins be exposed. Our job is to do the most thorough job that we can within reason, right? I mean, obviously you could just go on forever and ever and just say, well, you know what, we've known you for 10 years, but we still haven't, we're still not sure if you've, you know, if you've met all the qualifications. Obviously, there's a point at which we've taken it too far. So back to the installed pipe analogy. A good installer will not only make a good soldered connection, but he'll also do what? He'll test it, right? He's going to turn on the water before he puts up the drywall. Puts up all the cabinets that will hide all the problems that are going on behind the scenes. As go the, 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 um, the bad deeds in verse 24, there are some hidden, some exposed, or some, some open, some, some hidden. So go the good deeds. That is, sometimes it's not clear what kind of good works a person does until after an evaluation process. And so... With the good deeds, the same thing is true. Look at verse 25. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident. So in some cases, we're going to come across a guy who his deeds are obvious. He is really good at this area. He really excels in this specific qualification, this responsibility. And then notice the last part of verse 25. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. There's coming a time when those good deeds will be exposed. Jesus said it this way. Wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. His point was that his ministry would be shown to be right, that he was speaking truth based on how his followers responded. And I think the principle applies here as well, that the wisdom and goodness of a pastor will be vindicated by the fruit that is born in his ministry. I'm not talking about primarily numbers here, but, but frankly, in, in, in the righteousness and purity that, is, that comes from his ministry. So we, we want to see this. We want to see a pastor... Whose, whose works are actually shown to be good. And frankly, those are not always seen right away. Just like 
his bad deeds are sometimes hidden for a while, so his good deeds also could be, or another man's good deeds could be hidden for a while. And sometimes these things just take time. And the application is this, that a person cannot and should not be ordained without going through the ordination process, or, or I should say the evaluation process. That there must be a thorough evaluation. Now, there's a lot of leeway for how we evaluate, right? A um, number of churches do it a different number of different ways, but, but the fact is there needs to be an evaluation period, and it must not be hastily done because we want to expose what is actually there below the surface. And if we don't, then we share in the sins of, of the pastor who, whom we hire or whom we call, maybe a better way to say it. So, our application for tonight from this text is to take your responsibility and the church seriously. Certainly, there's application for me as well to take my responsibility seriously. Um, but who, wherever you are, if you're a leader in the church, if you're uh, a member of the congregation, take your responsibility seriously. Because the outworking and ruling of Christ's church is serious business. So no matter what role you have in Christ's church, you need to be serious about it. If you're called to be a leader, then don't get frustrated when the church is slow to make a choice on appointing you. They're obeying the command in verse 22 to not appoint you too hastily. That's okay. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. So if you're a leader, be patient. When you get into a position where you have ruling authority over the church, then lead with humility and grace. Make it a joy for the church to follow you. Give them what they need most. Feed them with the Word. Let them see your life and learn from it. Be teachable throughout the whole process. And then for everyone else whom God has not called to lead the church, when it comes upon you to, to bring on a new pastor or bring on an additional pastor, then don't rush into that process. Take it slowly. Use discernment. Don't be afraid to put the guy through the fire, so to speak. Go through the proper inspections that are necessary on his spiritual life. Because if you don't, you will bear the weight of responsibility for failing to do your due diligence. It has to get ugly before it gets pretty, so take your time, pray a lot, use discernment, and then relax. Recognize that all this is held in the sovereign hand of a loving God. And even if you did all that you're supposed to do and it turns out bad in the near term or the far term, recognize that God has it all under control and that He will judge that man in, in the end. And so, you have done your job. You will stand before God pure and blameless for how you brought Him on. So don't fear. Do your responsibility. Let God do the rest. I mean, that's the, part of the challenge, right? It's even in taking in members of our church. Part of the challenge is we can't see into the human heart, right? We can only see the externals. So people can put on fronts. They can deceive us. They can put on the show that they're very spiritual and then really be inside like a, a sepulcher, right? Like a, a, a beautiful whitewashed sepulcher that's on the outside very pretty, but inside is full of dead men's bones. And frankly, we ultimately can't see that. That's not an excuse for us to do nothing, to not do our inspection, but some people are just playing the game. And, and our job is to do the most thorough inspection within reason that we should do, and especially when it comes to a leader of the church.
God is working to bring about glory through Christ's church. And He wants you and I to be a part of the process. Let's pray. Father, what a great gift You have given to us to be able to to, uh, give us the privilege of being able to be a part of calling... Uh, people to lead our church and and you have equipped us with everything that we need in order to know how to put a person through thorough process and and um, and look for the good deeds and the proper qualifications that are necessary or if you wanted to you could self-appoint all ministers all leaders through miraculous means but you've chosen to use us imperfect, frail vessels that we are to try our best to evaluate based on what we know and based on the most important principles, trying to discern the the nature of the heart. But the heart is deceitful and, and we ultimately have to rely on you. So Lord, we do our best, but we count on you at the same time to help us along the way. We're thankful for this church, thankful for the people with which we can minister and encourage and that encourage us. Thank you for the mutual edification that there is every week that we can draw on one another's spiritual strength and use it to fight against the wiles of the devil, be able to stand up so that having done all, we will stand firm. Give us the strength to do so and help us as we um, seek to glorify you in our responsibilities specifically in our um, choosing of leaders. Whenever you put us in that position, we, we want to follow your expectations and not put hands too hastily on a person just in order to, to kind of um, get it over with, but rather that we would um, be slow and recognize the weight of responsibility that we have. Lord, we'll trust you throughout the whole process and give you the glory how you use it to advance your name and Christ's name in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.